Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Good morning, everyone. It is Mickey here, and you are listening to Wikipedia. And this week on the podcast, I speak to Nicole Jardim health coach, podcaster, speaker and writer on all things hormone health. Nicole and I talk about the disconnect between our modern lifestyles and optimizing hormone health, why balanced hormones is a bit of a misnomer, what a normal cycle should look like and how to test at certain times in your cycle to get a better understanding of what is going on. In addition to all of this insight, we very briefly touch on Nicole's own tongue tie surgery and why she had it done, what benefits she has seen and how her recovery is going. Nicole is such a wealth of information in the hormone space and so if you are not following her on Instagram at Nicole Jardim, then I absolutely recommend you do because she just very generously shares so much stuff and in addition to that she's got a host of things on her website as well. So Nicole is a certified women's health coach, writer, speaker, mentor and creator of Fix Your Period, a series of programs that empower women to reclaim their hormone health using a method that combines evidence-based information with simplicity. Her work has impacted the lives of tens of thousands of people around the world and as a result, she's earned the nickname Period Girl and Professional Period Fixer. She's been called on as a woman's health expert for sites such as Well and Good, Healthline, Mind Body Green, and she is also the host of The Period Party, which is a top-rated podcast on iTunes that brings experts together to talk about hormone health and hormones and health and I've actually just recently been on Nicole's podcast to talk all about protein um, and that was super fun to chat to her about that as well. She has a number of resources including the hormone test uh, checklist on her website and she's recently released her book Fix Your Period, Six Weeks to Banish Bloating, Conquer Cramps, Manage Moodiness and Ignite Lasting Hormone Balance and some of you out there will be super interested in that. So Nicole can be found at NicoleJardim.com and we will put links to that and her IG handle in the show notes. Before we crack on into the interview though, the best way to support the podcast is to subscribe in your favourite podcast platform. That way more people are aware of Wikipedia and we can get them listening to the expert advice that people like Nicole share on a weekly basis. All right, team, enjoy the conversation that I have with Nicole Jardim. Nicole, it is great to have this opportunity to talk to you this afternoon. I love talking women's health, particularly with people like you who have such a wealth of experience and knowledge and passion, right? So um, it'll be, I think, an awesome chat. And I also want to chat about your own health over the last couple of months with your surgery and, and things like that as well, if you were happy to share that. Yes, absolutely. 
Great. Um, so can we just sort of start by getting a picture of your background in women's health and how you became interested in it and sort of what progressed you on your journey? Yes. Oh my goodness. I, you know, I joke often that I was the unlikeliest period girl. Like this was not something I was going to do ever in my whole life. (laughs) I didn't even take biology in high school. I was just like not into the sciences and I, but I had problems. (laughs) And so that's really what, you know, what started all of this. So for me personally, I distinctly remember there being a shift when I was probably in my early teens and I you know I'd I got my period at 12 everything was normal and then things started to change so it was always like one month I was okay and then the next my period didn't come or my I had like suddenly a really heavy period and and then I, the pain started to become unbearable. So it really got to the point for me where I just thought, OK, I cannot live like this anymore. My mom didn't have any solutions because she also had had terrible periods. And so finally, I went to her gynecologist and she told me to uh, that my best option would be to go on the pill. And so I thought, well, that sounds like a great idea because I've been dealing with this for years. I'm mortified of leaking through my school uniform. I go to friends' houses and their mom has to put a towel down on the bed for me. <laughs> it's just like, kill me now. Are you kidding me? You know, being being in your teens is just so hard as it is. So anyways, eventually uh, I, I took her up on the offer. I went on the pill. And I had a cessation of all of these problems, right? The heavy periods were gone. My period came on time. I had no period pain anymore. My moods stabilized. Uh, My skin seemed like it was clearer than it ever been. Not that I had acne, but, you know, it just didn't look as good as it did on the pill. Anyway, so all these amazing things happen, right? And when you're 18, it's just life-changing and you think, okay, great. I'm, I'm set for life. I've found my silver bullet and I'm good to go. And then... Uh, two or three years into using the pill, I became the poster child for pill side effects. <laughs> and I started developing all of these problems that felt like they were completely unrelated. And that was like the tricky thing, right? Because as you know, when you're going to a conventionally trained medical doctor or a traditional medical doctor, they're going to they're gonna start to search for things, but nobody's ever going to tell you that it might be the pill. And nobody ever did. I must have seen like maybe 12, 13, 14 doctors in all different specialties and nobody had a solution. I had chronic yeast infections, UTIs. I had um, horrible gut health issues. I was chronically exhausted. I felt like I had a cold every other month. Sometimes I just couldn't even really get out of bed. Um, You know, my periods had practically disappeared. So I really didn't even have a period anymore. My hair was falling out like crazy. I had dark circles under my eyes. I was like a real mess. So everything that could have gone wrong felt like it was going wrong. And it wasn't until... I had an allergic reaction to probably the eighth prescription for a UTI that I, and I ended up in the hospital because I had like a severe reaction. I turned bright red and my temperature spiked up and I, you know, I felt like I was not, I was not going to make it. Um, Maybe that's a little dramatic, but it was that, it did feel that way. And so my friend who had been trying to get me to see her acupuncturist for so long the next day says to me, are you finally going to see this acupuncturist <laughs> I've been telling you about? And I thought, okay, fine, fine. I'm going to go see your acupuncturist. And he, he was a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner. He was probably about 75. He'd just, he'd come over from China and he was the first person to ever say to me, maybe it's your pill. And I just thought there's no way. 
And so that was really the the turning point for me and how I got on this path. And that was nearly 20 years ago. Well, amazing, Nicole. And, you know, if we just sort of back up a little bit with regards to your initial solution to the issues that you were having was to go on the pill. You know, as I was growing up, that was indeed my experience and the experience of a lot of my girlfriends. Like, is that still in your experience what's happening now? Is that still the solution given to women or have things changed? I really, it's, it's shocking to me, Mickey, because I feel as though when I talk to so many women as I do online pretty much every day, that it has not changed. I mean, I feel like there are certainly pockets of practitioners who are shifting and doing things differently. But generally speaking, traditionally trained doctors are still prescribing the pill for pretty much every female related problem. And in fact, I think it's gotten worse with regard to the fact that we are, we're, we're, prescribing it for more conditions than ever before is what it feels like to me. And and what's even more disturbing is that a lot of these pills have been rebranded or repackaged to to serve a specific problem, right? So there's acne and irregular cycles and things like that. And then when you think about the fact that in the US, and I know it's in New Zealand as well, right, that there's direct marketing of medications, yes, to the consumer, which is so weird that you guys do that because I, I expect it in America. I don't expect it from anyone else. But anyway, it is another, weird. I agree. Whole other podcast episode. <laughs> so what's crazy though is that in the late '80s, early '90s, when we started to direct consumer advertise in the U.S., they the pharmaceutical industry decided they got a, they had to come up with you know some more innovative ways to market the birth control methods that they currently had and they they really stopped innovating in the realm of birth control because what they decided to do instead was like i said repackage these products and market them to women for so-called lifestyle diseases like acne and irregular cycles and things like that. And so that was really the turning point, I think, where we started seeing these, these products being used for all manner of women's health issues. And to this day, of course, we're seeing it being relentlessly prescribed still for conditions like endometriosis, which is a full body inflammatory condition. It technically has nothing to do with your period. Your period is just responding to the inflammation in the body, but ultimately that's what they're doing. And and to the detriment, as you know, right, of the to short term and long term health of so many people who are on these medications. Yeah, no, completely um, appreciating my um, good friend, Lara Bryden, who I know you you know as well, Nicole. Yes. Yeah, she's very passionate in this area as well and sort of describes the difference between the uh, the components of the pill versus, for example, bioidentical sort of hormone replacement, which which is not something we're likely to talk about today, but just there are differences between the pill and your natural sort of hormones and what we actually have. Um, yes. And Nicole, you're, you know, on an email exchange, you mentioned that hormone imbalances is a term that women find very confusing. However, it is something that you hear a lot with women that, you know, their hormones are, you know, out of balance. Can you describe why you, find, why you think women get confused around what this actually means? Yes, absolutely. So 
I find the term hormonal imbalances to be so interesting because I'm not entirely sure where it came from, but it has been so popularized over the last decade or so. And, and it makes sense, right? Your hormones are just not quite where they're supposed to be. I call them disrupted hormones. I call them imbalanced hormones. We can call them all kinds of things, hormones in disarray, whatever you want to say. But ultimately, what I think the major problem is here is that when we think of a hormonal imbalance, we think of maybe estrogen or progesterone or something like that, right? So we're thinking about uh, the sex hormones. The problem there is that what we're not doing is, well, what we are doing with that is that we're viewing them in through the lens of a vacuum. We're not viewing them as hormones that are actually impacted by other hormones in the body. And so I, I talked about this in my book because I really wanted everyone to understand that the term hormonal imbalance is not what we think it is. Hormonal imbalances really start with cortisol and insulin, um, and those are really dysregulated by stress and blood sugar particularly. And the problem with this is that we have totally normalized all the things that cause cortisol and insulin dysregulation in our modern society. I actually was just talking on Instagram yesterday about the last 50 years and how much our society has changed so drastically that having optimal health is really quite difficult. And we tend to blame our menstrual cycles. We blame our bodies for misbehaving, for rebelling against us. But that's not what is happening at all. It's that these things that are that really do cause disruption have been normalized. Like that massive latte that you drink at 7 a.m. rushing your ass to work every day. And the fact that you don't eat breakfast until 11 a.m. And then you don't eat enough protein. So your blood sugar is on a roller coaster. And then at three o'clock, maybe you're having more coffee or tea or you're having sugar to keep yourself going. And then you're drinking at night. And we do this cycle over and over again. And it's certainly not to place blame on anyone's feet by any means. But it's just to say that these things that we're doing are just not really conducive to having good health and feeling well and feeling vibrant. So I think that when we're talking about hormonal imbalance, we have, we're only looking at a small sliver of the picture and we really need to be looking at the, at the wider picture of all the different hormones, including as in addition to the cortisol and insulin, but your thyroid hormones and your other stress hormones, as well as things like melatonin. Um, and the other, the other hormones that, you know, are androgens like DHEA and pregnenolone. And then, um, you know, other, you know, there's so many others, but I think there's some main hormones that we're just missing in this, in this equation. Yeah. And I've heard you um, just sort of describe that mismatch between optimal health and the environment that we live, which is exactly what you described there like the I feel like a lot of women um, who I speak to and you must speak to as well they sort of thrive on on stress and stimulation and and being busy it's sort of how things get done and how they feel they sort of achieve in life but it, it does come at the detriment of of their hormonal health but just actually their health in general right yes oh my gosh absolutely and Again, I think we don't even realize the warning yeah. signs. So when you think about, again, coming back to the hormonal imbalance and the cortisol and the insulin, and when you think about those hormones, when they go awry, what happens? And it's like, you're not sleeping properly. 
but everyone's not sleeping properly. So it's totally normalized. And, and what do you take when you're not sleeping properly? A lot of people are just like guzzling melatonin or they're taking uh, different herbal remedies or they're taking a, a medication that's helping them sleep, even though those medications have been proven to not be that effective and to not give you as much sleep as you might think they do. And so, and then what's happening with that? Then we wake up and we're still tired because we haven't had enough sleep or we haven't had enough quality sleep. And then we drink a ton of coffee or we eat like a very carb, sugar heavy breakfast to get us going. And then we might do that again a few hours later. And so this is now causing the insulin dysregulation. Um, and so, and this continues on, as you know, for decades. So I feel like it's sort of understanding that all of the things that we think are okay for us because in our society we've perpetually normalized all of these symptoms are actually our bodies telling us that something's wrong and and they go on for years and years because of course your body is kind of mir miraculous and it is going to do whatever it can and accommodate wherever it can just to maintain homeostasis so i just feel like if we could start to pay attention to these symptoms like the I am so exhausted, I can barely go work out, but I'm gonna go work out anyways and you know, and drive my cortisol even higher with a spin class or running or whatever when I don't even have like the raw materials just to function throughout the day. And it's a it's a perpetual cycle, right? And it's also a perpetuation of a society that doesn't believe in rest anymore. We just we're not interested in that yeah, apparently. It seems like they've gone by the wayside. And I get I think as well as not only have we normalized a lot of the behavior that influences what happens with our cycle, I feel like the fact that our that we do have period pain and, and we have a lot of these symptoms in and around our menstrual cycle or perimenopause is also quite normalized because so many people experience it. Nicole, can we sort of chat about what is actually normal for a menstrual cycle? I mean, it, it is sort of 101, but what should we expect? And and what are, you know, and just maybe highlight some of the symptoms which might tell us if things aren't uh, optimal. So I would start with the length of a menstrual cycle. I mean, this research shows that a 21 to 30 day menstrual cycle is considered within the normal range. I personally like to see a 25 somewhere between 25 and 35 days. And the reason why I like a little bit of a longer cycle is because that usually indicates to me that there's been a sufficient luteal phase, meaning that the corpus luteum on the ovary is pumping out enough progesterone for us to have a long enough luteal phase. And that to me means that things are going well nutritionally and stress-wise, like we're, we're doing okay. Um, again, that's not necessarily always the case, but that's kind of what I like to see. So 20 to 35 days. And I don't love to see a huge amount of fluctuation. Like I don't love to see, you know, one month is a 25 day cycle. The next is a 35 day cycle. And then we're sort of bouncing back and forth. I love to see some kind of consistency. Again, I don't want perfection and I don't want anyone to think that they have to have a perfect cycle, but I do think that that is, is helpful too, to write, to see that you are ovulating consistently and you're having healthy ovulation. The other thing that I think is important to pay attention to is the length of a cycle. So how 
how long or the length of a period, how long is your period? And so I personally love to see in my clients a period anywhere between three and seven days. The average, the statistical, statistical average is about four to five days. And, and that to me feels ideal, but again, everyone's different. And so some of us are six to seven day ladies, and some of us are two to three day ladies. And that's okay too, particularly if you're thinking about your menstrual cycle as a whole and that it is, you know, that it is generally healthy and you're feeling good because I think that's the thing, right? We tend to get stuck on these one things. Like every I talk about this online, women will say to me, oh my gosh, my period is this long or my cycle is not as long as you're saying or whatever. And I'm like, okay, what's going on with the rest of your body and how do you feel? And so I, I always want us to remember that our bodies are talking to us. They're not you know, they're not, like I said, rebelling against us. They're telling us what's going on in the language of symptoms. And it's up to us to be able to interpret those. And so sometimes, yeah, your cycle might be 36 days long or 37 days long, but generally you're feeling really good and everything else checks out with your cycle. So I, I, I really want us all to kind of grasp that because otherwise we start to freak out and I know how yeah. this goes. I, I'm a classic freaker outer. Um, so I would say that, you know, those are two big things. And then in terms of what your period blood should look like, this is another major indicator of what could be going on with your body. And so I would say that you really want to be aiming for like a vibrant red color or just like, you know, a shade of red is the goal. Uh, it doesn't need to be fire engine red, but it, it does need to be red. Otherwise, like if it's that darker um, brown, um, really dark colored, like purpley color. Usually that indicates to me that there is, uh, there's stagnation. And so oftentimes, uh, it's either that, or there's, um, you know, a tilted uterus or a tipped uterus. So your uterus is not quite in the position it's supposed to be in. So this creates a problem of blood that's pooling and it's not flowing the way it's supposed to. So it slows things down slow down blood is exposed to more oxygen. It becomes oxygenated. It looks more like rust or darker brown or darker colored in general. And so that's certainly something to think about. And oftentimes women say to me, well, my doctor told me I have a tilted uterus, but they told me that there, it doesn't matter and there's nothing to worry about. And I just feel like your uterus sits in your pelvic bowl and there are multiple organs that kind of hang out right around it. And so these all these organs work together, right? They all hold each other in place. So as you know, right, if there's something that is not quite in alignment, that will absolutely affect other organs. And so that causes, you know, potential issues with urination, it causes bowel issues. So you really want to make sure that your uterus is in the right place. And oftentimes I'll say to work with a pelvic physical therapist or someone with a specialty in that area to address any structural issues, particularly if you notice things like lower back pain when like cramping when you get your period, that's a pretty good sign that there might be something going on structurally with your uterus. Uh, on the flip side of that, what I often see as well is blood that's really thinned out or pinkish in color and bleeding that's kind of scanty. And often to me, that might say that you're either iron deficient, it could mean that you're estrogen deficient, it could mean that you're not ovulating or you're ovulating inconsistently. So you didn't ovulate, so that estrogen and progesterone did not build enough to build up that uterine lining to have a sufficient bleed. So those are some of the things that I, I like to pay attention to. Like I said, I didn't really mention anything about the heavy bleeding, but I feel like the heavy bleeding is, you know, a big problem for so many of us. And oftentimes it's just overlooked. 
and we're not, it's crazy. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, I was just put on the pill for this, but you could have a bleeding disorder. You could have a thyroid condition or thyroid disease. I mean, you might not be ovulating and why are you not ovulating? And, you know, and, and so we really have to look at these underlying reasons why someone might be bleeding too much versus not bleeding enough. And I know no one ever said, well, I, I want a heavier period, but some people actually do. And so if you're not bleeding a lot, then you might feel that way. And if you're bleeding too much, you might feel completely the opposite. And I think it's so important for us to remember that your period is not just your period, right? This is your period telling you something is going on. And it just means that the conversation, hormonally speaking, in your body is off. And, and now it's like, and now it's time to start to figure out what that is. And it requires a little bit of detective work sometimes. But so those are definitely some of the things. I would say one more thing, too, that we really want to be thinking about is pain. And apparently, you know, when your uterus is causing you pain, that is totally normal. <laughs> I'm kidding. But it seems to be that way. It's so normalized. It's so annoying. And, you know, and often we hear this, right? We hear, I well, I certainly hear crazy stories from women about period pain and that they've been in the ER and they're just sent home. And, you know, and, and this is often a sign of a condition known as endo. And endometriosis really is so prevalent and yet so woefully underdiagnosed and very much um misunderstood i would say and oftentimes you know we're experiencing this pain from the time we get our periods and what i think is so unfortunate i just had a 14 year old girl reach out to me the other day and she is in the uk and she said that she's been to three different doctors they've all told her that this pain is normal and she's in excruciating pain she seems to think she has endometriosis she's like the most informed 14 year old i've ever met and she has she says they've mentioned it to her one of them has and they told her that it they can't really do anything for her because she's too young for the diagnosis because it's a laparoscopic surgical diagnosis yeah i know and so this is the level of information that doctors around the world in countries that you would expect us to, you know, to kind of have it together and have figured out a solution and a way forward with these kinds of conditions are still giving this information. And so she now has to go outside of the NHS and, and try and find someone who can help her. But, you know, we see this all the time. And so when if you have had painful periods from the get go, from the very beginning, that is a pretty sure sign that something is up and it could be endometriosis not saying it is for sure but that's you know a good sign and so it's certainly something to consider so i would say some of those are some of the major flags i would be looking for with a menstrual yeah, no, cycle that's great nicole um first of all when you mentioned heavy periods like what constitutes a heavy period for a woman because of course you only experience your own period right so it might just and and you know what your mother may have experienced or maybe you talk to your obviously you talk to your friends and stuff but what would you sort of consider heavy this is such a great question and it's actually something i wrote about in the book because i felt that this was something that comes up so often so the the scientific consensus is that 80 milliliters or more of blood loss is considered a heavy period but like, what the hell is 80 milliliters, right? Nobody knows what this stuff is. <laughs> and also too, it's kind of hard 
to measure blood loss, menstrual blood loss, right? Like who wants to do that? And and it's hard because it's not just blood. It's, you know, there's fluids and there's tissue and there's clots and there's a whole lot of stuff going on down there. So what they say is 80 milliliters. You can measure that in a cup. Most people freak out when they see that because they think that that's very little. And I always say to them, just remember that measuring blood loss is hard. <laughs> so I feel like it, it may be a little bit more, maybe a little less. We don't really know. But I think what we need to look for are the symptoms. And so that's where I come back to being the, you know, period detective and thinking about, first of all, have you always felt like, or has it recently happened? Cause it could be from the very beginning, or it could have been, you know, in the last few years or since you had a baby, but in the time that you feel like you're heavy, heavily bleeding, do you notice that you have to use a pad and a tampon or a pad and a cup or period underwear and a cup? Like, do you double up on period protection on, you know, at least a few days of your cycle? Do you notice that at night you have to get up and actually change your period protection or you're going to leak through your clothing onto your bed, that kind of thing? Or you're like me putting a towel down <laughs> back in the day. Um, do you notice that your period completely wipes you out? Like you were absolutely spent in those first few days of your period. Um, and also too, things like, are you going through more than a pad, like a regular pad or a tampon or even a super pad and a tampon, like more than an hour? Um, you know, what you're changing these more than every hour in the first day or two of your cycle. So those are definitely some signs that you will know that something's going on with your cycle. Cause it's not to meant to be like yeah. that. Yeah, at all. for sure. Nicole, is our um, conditions around the period, like you mentioned endometriosis, and of course there's polycystic ovary syndrome, um, are these more prevalent nowadays in your um, sort of understanding? Or is it, are we just more aware of it? Are women more aware of them? So we're talking about it more? Like it's, yeah, what's your, what's your opinion? That, that's, I mean, that's a, such a great question. And I feel like we contemplate this all the time in the women's health space. Is it happening more or is it that we just have more awareness and better testing and better understanding of these conditions? I personally feel like it's happening more and it feels more severe. When I think about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when I started this, I just don't recall seeing conditions being as severe as what I'm seeing yeah. now. And I've had this conversation with so many other women in this space who are doing this similar work. And the same thing comes back from them too. They say that their case, their cases have become so complicated. Never have they seen this before. And that's really concerning, obviously. And to me, it really speaks to the fact that our environment has changed so, so much in the last particularly 20 to 30 years that we are like I've said, you know, I was, we were talking about this, right? It's kind of a mismatch there. We're just not, this is not conducive to optimal health at all. And so we're really, I think we're, our bodies are really struggling under that burden. And I think the other thing is too, if I could say one thing without hopefully upsetting anybody, it's that what we feed our children really matters. And, and what I see, what people are feeding their kids. And again, there's no judgment. I'm just, I'm observing as a non- 
parent. Um, but you know, I'm seeing this and I'm just thinking, okay, we're creating so much inflammation in our children from a really young age. And you know, what is that? Like, is that setting the stage for these chronic debilitating conditions that we then just assume are menstrual cycle related conditions when in fact, you know, your menstrual cycle is just responding to the environment in your body. And, and so I'm, I'm just so concerned about that. And I, I think that that's something that, we think kids are just resilient and they, you know, they're not phased by any of these foods that we're feeding them, but they, I think they really are. And the long-term consequences are really unknown because we don't really have any research on yeah. that at all. And what's interesting, like similarly, I talked to um, Dr. Stephen Cunane, whose original research was in brain development and the nutrients required for brain development. And I asked him a similar question to the point that you raised in that, you know, how does the food environment now reflect actually what kids need in terms to grow and develop with regards to the brain? And I mean, it's, I, I share your despair at how difficult it is in this type of environment and the types of foods we're told are healthy or it's fine because kids have calories. That's just what they need. Um, and, you know, what's actually going to go, going to happen sort of later on down the line. So, and I think that there are parents, and I know that I have uh, friends who are parents and who equally feel um, a little, feel distraught at what is available for children these days and also the cost of food and, and yeah. everything. Yes. Nicole, if someone has issues with their period that they feel need addressing um, I get asked the question a lot about how to test for you know their hormones at different times of the month or can you test for perimenopause and I know that you have a good resource in and around hormone testing um, but can you just sort of briefly describe some what are some of the really basic things that women can go to their doctors and ask for that might provide them with more information Yes, thank you so much for this. I feel like this is such a good question that people are perpetually confused by. And I think one of the things that I, I hear the most is, well, my doctor won't test my hormones <laughs> and I don't know what to do. And and I like I, I want to say, first of all, to everyone who's struggling with this, I totally see you. I hear you. I had a similar experience last year. It's so frustrating to not be heard, especially when you feel like you know what you're talking about. You've done some research and you want to have this educated conversation with your doctor. And at the same time, they're trained to see things a little bit differently. So I would say the first thing is if you want to get your test, your hormones tested and you're having problems with it, I recommend making changes first and see how you feel because your hormones being tested is a great thing. And it's always nice to see your baseline and see what's going on and get some insight into, you know, what's happening under the hood. But at the same time, it's not going to change what you have to do. And, and I know that we talked about this via email as well, right? That there's, you know, inherent struggles in, in making these changes and we've all been there and I get it. Um, but it really won't, right? Like having those answers might make you feel more assured in that you understand now what's going on or that it's confirming to you exactly what you thought all this time. But ultimately it really doesn't change the fact that we need to take care of our basic needs. And, and I know that, like I said, it's a bit of a radical act to be healthy these days, but 
we have to do what we can, right? We have some control. I, I don't want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater and say like, well, we should just throw our hands up and give up because we actually have a significant amount more control than we've ever been led to believe when I really reflect on what I've seen over the last 12 years. And, you know, I, I think that there's a very disempowering message for women generally about their health that, well, you have a uterus and so you're kind of screwed. And it's not even like you're kind of screwed. You're kind of screwed at every stage in the life cycle, right? It's like puberty really sucks. So does postpartum. So does perimenopause. So does menopause. I mean, really, you don't like get anything good and then you die. I mean, it's a terrible message <laughs> to send to all of us. And so I really feel as though, you know, we need to take control of the situation because otherwise we will fall into that compare and despair situation where we're just like, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to give up hope. I had someone reach out to me once actually, and she said, well, should I even test my hormones? Like, should I even try to make changes? Cause I'm about to go into perimenopause and I've heard that's just terrible. So I don't feel like there's any point. I was like, wait a second, what? So yes. <laughs> so for anybody who's listening, there's a point, I swear that you have to do this because no one else is going to do it for you. <laughs> and it's so important for us to, to have that understanding, but then to also be open and willing to make changes. And even if it's like small changes, then that's a good thing. Like that's something you should really consider doing if you feel like the big changes are overwhelming. I, I believe in the short term and the long term changes and dividing and conquering that way. So when it comes to testing hormones, I would say that you kind of want to know if and when you're ovulating. I, I love everyone to have an understanding of that. And you can really know that if you are taking your basal temperature and paying attention to your cervical fluid. This is known as the fertility awareness-based method of, you know, cycle, cycle tracking slash um, a, a birth control method. So the point here, though, is that you don't necessarily need to do hormone testing to know whether you're ovulating and whether you're having a, a good quality ovulation, you could actually just be taking your temperature, which is very inexpensive. Um, but with that, you want to be testing estradiol. You want to test that um, typically between days, you know, three and five of your cycle. Um, and the reason you would do it then, uh, and that, you know, this is more of a fertility thing. So I'll get into that in a second. But the reason you would do it then is to just see where those levels are at that time in your cycle at the very beginning when FSH and then LH will both be rising uh, because FSH and estrogen play, you know, they have a, a role um, that they play together. And so basically estrogen, if it's too high, could suppress FSH uh, and then you get an artificial number. So you want to see what's going on with your estrogen at that time in your cycle. FSH and LH are the brain hormones. They're talking to your ovaries. If they're too high or too low, that tells you that your ovaries are either not responding or they're over responding. So you want to, again, want to look at that and find out what's going on there. Um, and then again, like post ovulation, so five to seven days post ovulation, you really want to test estrogen and progesterone. Um, estrogen, again, you can kind of just see what's going on with it at that time in your cycle. I think it's really helpful because you're testing progesterone at that time too. And that's going to give you an, a, an accurate picture of what your progesterone levels look like at that time of your cycle. So it'll tell you if you ovulated or not, because at a certain level, um, progesterone will tell you whether you've ovulated or not. And then also too, it'll tell you, did, is your corpus luteum healthy? Is that, is that little follicle where your egg came from actually producing enough of that progesterone that you really need for that second half of your cycle and, and for having a baby, if that's something that you're wanting to do. But I should say that 
even if you're not trying to have a baby, your menstrual cycle is so important still. And I feel like that's another message that we get so often, as you know, that our, our cycles are basically worthless unless we're trying to have a baby. And that is so far from the truth. Um, we need these hormones so, so much. So I would say that some, those are some of the hormones you want to look at. And I would say the other ones that I think are so important for someone who might be dealing with a condition like polycystic ovary syndrome, for instance, uh, you want to measure your androgens. So you want to do your free and your total testosterone, your DHEA, um, possibly other androgens as well, like dihydrotestosterone or DHT, which is a pretty potent androgen that can cause a lot of the sort of male uh, character, male sex characteristics that a lot of women experience. So things like growth on the face, hair growth on the face or on the chest, as well as hair loss on the head. Um, so those are some of the hormones I would recommend testing just to start to see where you are. Of course, there are other hormones one can test yeah. as well. No, that's fantastic. Thanks, Nicole. And as I said, there is, you've got a great resource um, available on your website that sort of details all of this out. And I I think it's great for women to be aware that there are more advanced uh, tests like the Dutch test, the dried urine test for comprehensive hormones, but it's not essential first and foremost to sort of go down that route and spend several hundred dollars if that's, you know, not an option for you. Um, Nicole, you mentioned that, of course, even without testing, there are some simple things women can do to help to change in order to see what difference it makes to their to their cycle. Because, of course, testing is one thing, but you're right, a lot of the time that doesn't change the treatment. So what are some sort of really super simple things that we can do to help start getting our cycle back online? Yes, I mean, I would say the first thing for all of us, and you may not want to start with this, but I, I highly recommend it is tracking your cycle, just tracking these basic parameters that are, you know, that first of all, causes so much grief. And secondly, we just don't even understand. And when I, I feel like when we have this basic understanding of how our bodies are functioning, it changes everything. It's life changing. It changes our ability to have conversations with healthcare providers. It changes our own relationship with our bodies. I, uh, you know, somebody said to me the other day, some information I provided, she said, wow, that gives me a lot of perspective on my period. And I don't feel like I want to blame it anymore for the problems that it's caused me. And, and I think that that is, is so important for us to think about, because when you consider that, again, your body is just reacting to all of these problems that are, you know, in, in our environment or inside us or in our external environment, then you can kind of take the pressure off your own body. And just remember that women's bodies are the canary in the coal mine. They're these, they're responding to the things that men's bodies might not be responding to, although they're responding to, let's not, you know, make any jokes about that, but they're, you know, we tend to see these, these symptoms pop up way more often and us delicate flowers like me for sure, um, really see them. So I would say that the cycle tracking is so important. So you really want to think about tracking how long your actual cycle is. Is it 25 between 25 and 35 days? You want to see how long you're bleeding for. You kind of want to pay attention to, how heavy your bleed is or how light it is. You want to pay attention to symptoms. Are you spotting for more than two or three days before your period starts? That's an oft, often an indicator of lowered progesterone or progesterone that is lowering prematurely before you get your period. 
are you experiencing premenstrual symptoms, physical and emotional? You know, are you having like major bloating and breast pain? And are you having major mood issues that are really disrupting your life? And so that's the thing I want everyone to remember too, is that if your period is disrupting your life, then that warrants investigation. If it's not, then it may warrant a little investigation if you're having some problems, but generally speaking, your period shouldn't disrupt your life. So I would say make a note of those kinds of things. And then more on a on a more advanced level cycle track of cycle tracking, you'd be paying attention to your basal body temperature. So that's taking your temperature every single morning right as you wake up or using a wearable device. You can wear one on your wrist or on your arm and those will take your temperature throughout the night and then give you a temperature in the morning. And that again, you will see you have lower temperatures before ovulation, higher temperatures post ovulation, that's known as a biphasic pattern. And that tells you that you've ovulated um, which again is miraculous. It's so cool to be able to have that data on your body. I've been tracking my cycle or my temperature now for like 12, 13 years. And to go back, I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. Um, but anyway, so I would say that, and then charting your cervical fluid patterns as well. Cervical fluid is on a basic level, much wetter in consistency before ovulation versus after ovulation where it dries up or becomes a sticky or tacky texture. And so that again is another sign that ovulation has occurred. So these are amazing options for people to just kind of get an idea into what's happening with their bodies. And I talked about that in the first chapter of the book. So there's, there's information if you wanted it. Um, I would say the other thing is sleep. So I was talking about this the other day. I don't know what your thoughts are, Mickey, but I, you know, when you're in your forties, it's a whole different story. Uh, when I, if I was listening to me talk now and I was 25, I'd probably be rolling my eyes, but try not to roll your eyes, ladies. I promise it's, I know I'm sounding so annoying and like a granny right now, but I don't care. Um, because I feel like nobody ever told me that sleep was as important as I know. it is. Nobody. I know. I know. Had I known? <laughs> like what? Yes. Wow. What a difference. I would have made such an effort in my twenties to actually prioritize it. But I agree yes. with you. Like women are so lucky these days that this information is out there now. Right. You should thank yeah. us all just so you all know. <laughs> Thank us now. No, it's so true. I could not agree with you more. It drives me crazy because I think back, I'm like, wow, I slept pretty easily back then. It was all so simple and I took it for granted and I didn't sleep enough. So anyways, I will just say that if, first of all, and you obviously know this, you talk about this all the time, like the chronic underfueling and the chronic over-exercising or the over-exerting, not even exercise, just in life in general, you know, you're out five nights a week and you're doing all the things, but when you're not getting this, just getting that foundational rest and you're doing all the other things, it, it's just a recipe for disaster. And I have countless women coming to me in their late twenties and their early thirties who really should have regular, normal cycles that are not problematic and they have they have chronic irregular cycles they don't ovulate consistently they have painful periods when they do get their periods they're really heavy and i'm like if you just changed your sleep hygiene and you started sleeping better this could potentially be exactly what it is you need i mean i won't say it's the magic pill but i i really believe that and so i i really think that if we could change our sleep that would be that would be like the number one thing I would suggest. And so what does that look like? Like that to me is going to being in bed by 10 PM, 
hopefully sleeping by 11 p.m. because I know that's kind of a push for a lot of people, but like even sleeping by 10 p.m. would be miraculous. Um, And getting like seven to nine hours of sleep. Some of us really actually need nine hours of sleep. And I, especially if you've had like a traumatic childhood or some sort of trauma in your life and your adrenals are so spent that, you know, your, your body just needs as much rest and recuperation as possible and restoration. And I use an aura ring for everybody who doesn't know what that is. And I feel like it has been such a game changer. I I love the data. I like to wear things and see what it tells me about my body. I'm fascinated by this. Um, But I I really do think that I need accountability. And sometimes we really need accountability. And my aura ring is like, listen, lady, you need to deal with your life. Um, And so I, you know, I, I feel like sometimes you just need that. And I, I, so for me personally, that to me has been so helpful to just see, okay, this is how much sleep I'm getting. I need to make an effort to be in bed by 10, 15 when it tells me to do this and that kind of stuff. And then also to know that when you feel exhausted the next day to not push yourself because you are just further driving the adrenal thyroid problems that are going to impact your ovaries. There's an adrenal thyroid ovarian axis and they are all talking to each other. And the ovaries are literally at the bottom of that totem pole. And as you know, right, your adrenals and your thyroid, if they, first of all, if your adrenals go haywire, which everyone's are haywire at this point, it impacts your thyroid greatly. It downregulates your thyroid function. And so then your thyroid is now impacting your ovaries. You literally need thyroid hormone in order to make progesterone in order for your ovaries to function. Every cell in your body has a thyroid hormone receptor. So this domino effect that we see over and over again, it's not unique at all. And it may show up differently for different people. But at the end of the day, if you're having irregular periods, that is a sure sign that there is adrenal and thyroid distress, and it's likely been going on for a long time. And that's where you have to focus. Now, that's such good information, because I don't think people are aware of how they intersect and to mention sleep as well. But because people are very quick to want to take a supplement to help change things or you know and and even dietary change I feel women are far more ready to to take that step alcohol not so much but diet yes um but when it comes to sleep that's like a whole other conversation that it's it's a challenging one for people because it means that they have to sort of change how they interact with their environment right and that's a challenge Yes, you do. It's so true. I know you really have to start to think about getting ready for bed by 8 p.m. versus settling in to watch that great Netflix show that you really want to watch at, until 9.30. Yeah. Um, and so it's it does require that. But the potential benefits and the after effects are, are so remarkable. And, you know, I feel like there's lots of things you can do to help with sleep, too, because, of course, Lots of us feel like we wake up in the middle of the night and or we, you know, we have all kinds of issues with like falling asleep or staying asleep and then, you know, feeling like we wake up too early or we wake up when we feel crappy. And, um, you know, some of the things that I've used are magnesium before bed, uh, like a just natural calm. It's powdered magnesium. I've used that. I use a magnesium foot bath sometimes before bed, or I'll take a magnesium, like an Epsom salt bath or a magnesium flakes 
bath um, in the nighttime. Uh, so all of those can be tremendously helpful. Uh, you know, sometimes melatonin is helpful and melatonin has been used for all kinds of treatment protocols for all kinds of conditions, endometriosis, all kinds of stuff. So melatonin can be helpful, but I, I wouldn't depend on that. I would, I would say like, if that's what you need to sort of help you get to the point where you're falling asleep at 10 PM, then that's great. Um, but I think that there are other ways as well. Uh, just getting your phone out of your room. I know this is the hardest thing for people, but like reading a book <laughs> puts everybody to sleep, guys. Come on. So, you know, like the phone is just too stimulatory. I would say red light therapy has been amazing for me. Um, drinking, uh, you know, tea with um, chamomile, like a chamomile tea is so helpful as well. Uh, you know, oh, by the way, yeah, like putting some like a drop or two of lavender on your pillow, just wiping it on your pillow. Amazing. I also use this um, vetiver essential oil um, on the soles of my feet. And every time I use it, I do not wake up in the middle oh, of the night. Amazing. <laughs> so clearly something is working there. Yeah, it's incredible. So I'm a big fan of, of using these little hacks. Like I use um, a, a sleep mask that sort of like just covers half my face. <laughs> and it's like this big fluffy thing. And that also has been so great for just like making sure that all the light is out of my eyes. Um, yeah, so that, you know, there's, I feel like there are a lot of little things that we can do that will help us to get into the mood to sleep and then actually fall asleep and have a good night's sleep for anyone who feels like they have struggles with well, that. And a lot of women do. And I think it's like you've given such helpful strategies to help sort of aid the sleep. And I, and I think that your um, sort of first point of actually getting to bed earlier and ensuring you've, that's how you're setting up your day, almost essentially um, to allow for you to switch off earlier to sort of get to bed. I think that's such an important uh, important point. Um, Nicole, now I've got like five more minutes with you and but I and so I really would love to shift gears very quickly because I think yes. that your and people can search your Instagram feed for more information on this um and I believe you have a podcast on it as well oh, am I right about the tongue tie Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Of course. I forgot we were talking about yeah, that. Yeah. Yes, I do. I have multiple podcasts. I've brilliant. done three. Oh, brilliant. So can you briefly um, just sort of um, set the scene as to what the issue was and how you discovered that uh, that um, surgery would be the approach that you would take to help sort of resolve it? Because I think it's so interesting. Yes, I'm so glad you asked this. For anyone who does not know, um, a tongue tie is basically when you have a little tiny strip of flesh underneath your tongue and it's sort of anchoring your tongue to the lower part of your mouth, whereas your tongue is actually supposed to be very mobile. And I did not know this until adulthood. Uh, I also had an upper and a lower lip tie. So these, again, are when your sort of lips are anchored to your gums and they're supposed to be more mobile. Anyway, I saw a biological dentist many years ago and they suggested it. And it really wasn't until I saw another one a few years ago when I moved to Connecticut from New York that I decided, okay, I think I need to do something about this. Because he said, if you're going to deal with anything, deal with that first. And and so then I, I went on a search because I wanted to find someone who was a little closer to me. And I found the dentist who I've currently been working with. And so he did an examination. He referred me to an osteopathic that he works in conjunction with. And so they do things a little bit differently. He's not just a dentist who's going to go in and just like snip, 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 and then send you on your way. Uh, they're big believers in preparation, particularly for adults. 
of, you know, for the surgery. And then, um, the osteopath actually sits in with the dentist while he's using the laser, making the cuts, um, feeling my body, basically his hands underneath my back was just feeling around for like muscle tension and changes as the snips were happening, which is very different. It's not something that people typically do, uh, but it was quite an incredible experience. And then, so what happened is I I met with him and then I also met with a myofunctional therapist. And so a myofunctional therapist is someone who basically does physical therapy for your tongue for lack of a better way of describing it. And so I prepped with a myofunctional therapist and with the osteopath for multiple months before actually doing the procedure. Unfortunately, I got COVID about five days before I was supposed to have it done. And so we rescheduled and for like 10, 12 days later or something, maybe two weeks later. So two and a half weeks later, I go and do the surgery and I'm bleeding like crazy. And that was the first, that was my first warning sign that something wasn't right uh, because it was a laser. And typically with a laser, you don't bleed as much. And then I didn't heal very well. So it took me, it, it, and I'm still not fully healed. And it's been nearly 10 weeks now since I've had the procedure. But basically that first week post-procedure, I had, uh, I was just like had massive swelling and pain that just was unbearable. And I really couldn't do any of the exercises that are required because now that they've cut underneath your tongue and they've cut up and below, you're, you know, you're tongue doesn't know what to do. So you, there are a lot of stretching exercises that are involved in all of this. And I really couldn't do a lot of them to the level that I needed to. So there was some reattachment and, um, and that's, so that's essentially where I'm at. I've had amazing results though. Things like things that I just didn't, I just didn't know what to expect, but initially when they first did the procedure, I know I felt almost immediately like a complete relaxation in so many muscles that have been tense in my neck and my back for years and years and nothing has really touched it. So that was incredible. Like I could not get over that. And then I, and then over time I noticed that, um, you know, I was getting acid reflux at certain times in my cycle, which, you know, I can definitely link back to some things, hormones and whatnot, but it was coming continuously and I was doing a bunch of stuff and nothing was really touching it, but I have not had that since. And that's like one of the big, uh, big problems associated with tongue tie. Um, and then like nail biting, like that was like a chronic habit that I had that has pretty much gone away completely. Um, I was grinding my teeth at night. I have not ground my teeth. I was having issues with like a few lower teeth down here, uh, because of the way I was laying down and grinding my teeth. Um, so that's completely gone as well. I mean, so many random things that I would never have thought have changed. And that's with a tongue that didn't heal properly. So I'm going to go back in probably in a month and a half or so. Um, I'm continuing to do more preparation uh, to just have the revision done, probably just under the tongue and see how that goes. And then I'll consider the lips later because there was, like I said, some reattachment. So that's kind of what shifted. It's fascinating as an adult to do this. I know. And was it, is it obvious? Like if someone has a tongue tie, are they going to know that they have a tongue tie? I mean, you probably won't because it's something you've had for so long. But like if anybody Googles a tongue tie, they'll see. Like there is yeah. a strip of, yeah, there's like a strip of tissue that is like attached to your, you know, close to the tip of your tongue down to the bottom, the floor of your mouth. Um, so you should be able to tell for if if you do have one. 
A lot of the time though, breastfeeding is a big problem. So that's like the big issue. My mom couldn't breastfeed me and there was all kinds of problems. And so that's the biggest thing. And that's why most of the time it's caught when you're a baby and addressed. If you know, if you live in a country where this is something that people talk about and, and it's readily available, treatments are. Uh, for me, it was not. Um, you know, 40 something years ago. So it was one of those situations where it just all, you know, like all my childhood issues though, make a lot of sense. Like a lot of nervous system dysregulation. I had a pacifier, you know, when I was a baby and then my parents, you know, we, we got a little pacifier divorce at like two. And then I started biting my nails like pretty much immediately. And so that's what they said to me. Well, you stopped biting your nails, but you needed something to stabilize your jaw because when your tongue is not in the right position, which is supposed to be up against the roof of your mouth, um, what happens is if it's just sort of floating around, um, it creates this jaw instability and all these muscles in your face uh, are, you know, creating this sort of fight or flight response essentially is what happens. And so kids have chronic constipation or chronic stomach issues. You know, they, they have this nervous stomach or they feel nervous a lot of the time. Uh, you know, they bite their nails, they suck their thumbs, they have speech impediments. There's all kinds of stuff that comes with improper tongue posture. I mean, this is like completely blown my mind. I can't get over the stuff I've learned in the last six months. Oh my goodness. And it's such a tangent from our original sort of like topic of conversation, but I really wanted you to <laughs> mention it here because again, as you know, I said, oh, just one podcast, you have three podcasts, you've shared so much on social about it. And I feel like if anyone recognizes any of the symptoms or experiences that you've just described, Nicole, it is well worth um, searching out uh, that information. And, and it sounds to me like addressing it would just be so key. So key. I will say, Mickey, real quick too, that it's kind of a deviation, but not really because I, I actually, the myofunctional therapist I did have on the podcast, she talked about the fact that this kind of internal stress is, it drives, you know, it drives the HPA axis to become even more responsive. And so we end up in a situation of HPA axis dysregulation um, and, you know, chronic anxiety and all kinds of things. Like Dr. Geis, my osteopath who also came on the podcast, he talked about kids biting onto like wooden chair legs and table legs because they just needed something to stabilize their jaw because they were so there's so much nervous energy so I feel like that 100% affects your hormones so if you are an adult I agree with you like if this resonates with you definitely check out the podcast episodes because I feel like it definitely is life-changing yeah amazing Nicole and to finish up where can people find you Oh, yes. You can find me at NicoleJardim.com. I'm there. Basically, that's my home. And you'll find my blog on there, all my podcast episodes, as well as how to contact us and my courses um, and my book as well, Fix Your Period. And I spend most of my time on Instagram. I'm at Nicole M. Jardim. I'm also on TikTok, <laughs> um, unwillingly. And um, and then I have like all of our podcast videos on YouTube as well. So you can, you can access stuff on there as well. That is amazing, Nicole. You are a wealth of information and you are so generous with what you share. And I'm so thankful you took the time to come on this morning as well. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Mickey. You're just a genius and I appreciate everything that you share in the world. And I'm so honored to be here. Thank you. Alrighty, so hopefully you enjoyed that and of course check out Nicole 
at her website nicolejardim.com over on Instagram or check in with her podcast. Next week on the podcast, I have the pleasure of chatting to Dr. Eric Westman all about low-carb nutrition, and you know that that is a favorite topic of mine. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin, and over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where in addition to signing up for my recipe portal access, which you can do at $12 a month, and you get over 900 recipes regularly updated, access to my weekly email, the ability to tap my brain for any of your nutrition-related queries. You can also book a one-on-one consultation or sign up to one of my meal plans. And that is over at mickeywillardin.com. All right, team, until next week, have a great week.